Our Heavenly Father, we come to you through the merits of Jesus. We have no merits of our own. And because of the wonderful love and the example of our Lord, we ask just to make me a nail on the wall, fastened securely in its place. Then from this thing so common <clears throat> and so very small, please hang a bright picture of thy face. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our topic at this hour, friends, <clears throat> is one of the most important of all topics that could ever be presented to a group of fellow Christians. It is so important that there are 826 texts of Scripture that command it or enjoin it or teach it. Now, just think a moment. We are Bible-believing Christians. If the Bible makes a command, gives a command once, a clear-cut, simple command once, we're to obey it, aren't we? Once. We shouldn't wait for the Lord to, to repeat it twice, right? If it's a simple, clear-cut, plain command once, we should follow it. We should obey it. But when he makes a command or or he teaches us in 800 and more scriptures, it must follow that it's extremely, extremely important. The individual whose experience I want to share with you most prayerfully is that of a friend of ours whom we have known for nearly 50 years. Back in college days, I knew this young lady as a young lady. I remember that I was leading music one night in a religious service at the college at which she was in attendance. And I was happy and rejoicing and leading the people in joy. And she was sitting there <clears throat> looking at me philosophically. Her father was a philosopher. You know what a philosopher is? A philosopher is one who has a love of wisdom. And she saw no, no love for this kind of a joyous Christianity. She wanted wisdom, but she couldn't see any wisdom to being happy. She saw the wisdom of opening the books with a good scowl, learning facts. But the, one of the greatest facts of the Christian life she had never learned to incorporate in her life. That is the special, special law of communication called joy or rejoicing or praising the Lord or giving thanks for our blessings based on 826 texts of Scripture. How many texts of Scripture? 826. The Lord must mean it. <clears throat> there must be something very special that is promised to his children if we will learn joy, rejoicing, praising, thanking God from the very depths of our being. <clears throat> I kept on in my rejoicing philosophy a part of the time. <clears throat> when the sun shone brightly on my Christian experience, I was rejoicing. People thought I was a very happy individual, and I was for the most part. But then I found there were some crises and in those crises times of my life, I found that I failed. I didn't realize that Jesus, who died on Calvary, has promised not to permit anything to come to me greater than I'm able to bear. He has said that tribulation, if I make the right response to it, creates patience, James chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. I had read where Paul said, we glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation works patience and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in the heart. I'd never placed this love of God that is shed abroad in the heart as having anything to do with rejoicing in trouble. But God puts them together. And, and the Lord places faith and joy together, and God places humility and joy together. The Lord says in Romans 15, 13, through his inspired apostle, 
there's joy and peace in believing. If I will believe that God, who gave his son to die for me, will permit no experience to come to my, into my pathway except that which is calculated to refine what little gold is there and to remove all the drosses there and to prepare me to be with the blessed throughout eternity where there'll be no word of murmur, not a whisper of discontent throughout the ages of eternity. I say, why, this is wonderful. Lord, life is a school. And in this school of life, I want to learn the lessons so that I can graduate and go back to glory land with the saints of God throughout eternity, saved by the power of Jesus Christ. So many times in my experience, I failed under the awful weight of temptation and disappointments. I failed to be that happy, bubbling over, rejoicing Christian that I was at other times. And my friends that had it made a tremendous impact on my experience. Lord, how is it that even as a minister, I've rejoiced, why, I've rejoiced thousands of times. And then when that terrible crisis hour strikes, I fail to realize that the Christ who died on Calvary for me, had there not been another soul to have accepted him, he will never permit any temptation to come to me until first he filters it. And he said, there's no temptation that'll take you but such as is common to man. God is faithful, Coon, who will not suffer you to be tempted about that you're able, but he will, with the temptation, make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 13, 10 to 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 10 to 13. And there were times I'd completely forget this. And I also found myself forgetting many times the text of Scripture, Nehemiah 8, 10, which really is an equation. It says, joy plus the Lord equals strength. But it words it this way. The joy of the Lord is your strength. This was told to the children of God in Old Testament times when because of their great sorrow for their sin, they were giving themselves over to complete sorrow. And even when they made a new start, they went home under a cloud or were about to go home under a cloud, having made a new start in Christ. And Nehemiah said, don't go home sorrowfully. The idea is God has forgiven you every sin you've ever committed. He's put behind his back down in the depths of the sea. Don't now go home sorrowfully for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And sometimes I would forget it. But as the years came and went, I began to realize, dear Lord, a vital part of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, Romans 8, 28. And when I know that my Lord and Master is in charge of my life, then I can say there's joy and peace in believing. When I realize that the Lord says, I'll save your children, though everything seems to be against it, circumstances seem to forbid that they'll ever change. I have said in Isaiah 20, 49, 25, I will save your children. When I realize that, there's joy and peace in believing. I can look up in the face of God and say, Lord, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken and shall he not make it good? Numbers 23, 19. Lord, you're true. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth shall pass away. My word shall not pass away. He has said in, in John 16, 24, if you ask, you will receive and your joy will be full. What is this joy based on? It's based on taking God at his word. It's based on a trusting attitude that God is bigger than the devil, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is more powerful than all the forces of darkness, that when the forces of darkness conspire together and consolidate to destroy me, then the Lord is said in Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that's formed against you will prosper. What'd you say, Lord? No weapon that's formed against you will prosper. Every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and your righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Isaiah 54, 17. Oh, how many hundreds of times I believe I've claimed that promise. Lord, 
You're more powerful than the devil. I don't have to tell about the wonderful power of Satan. I have the right to rejoice in your promises. I have a right to rejoice in your love. I have a right to trust and snuggle up in confidence that you will never permit any temptation to come to me except as it will do me good and will create patience. Many, many years had come and gone. <clears throat> In an awful experience of my own, under nerve exhaustion, where my medical doctor said I'd be laid up for six months, I started this JOY program. A medical doctor in my church had enjoined this program on my relatives. He said, make a list of ten things, and another ten things, and another ten things, for which you're grateful, and then vocalize it. And this is scriptural. In Psalm 103, verses 1 to 5, it says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. And then it goes on, it says, He will restore our youth like the eagles. And he will and will save us from destroying ourselves. If all that is within us praises the Lord. That means all that is within us, the sense of touch, the sense of speech, the sense of sight, the sense of hearing, all that is within me is to rejoice. So I made a list of 10 things for which I was grateful. As I made the list on a very small card, about an inch square or an inch and a half square, little column of 10 things, as I made the list, that employed the sense of touch and the sense of sight as I saw myself making it. Two of the senses were employed right there. As I kept it in my hand and as I went about my daily activities, I kept the sense of touch for I was touching it. I looked at it, that employed the sense of sight. I said the equation of Nehemiah 8.10. Thank you, Lord for eyesight. Thank you, Lord, for hearing. Thank you, Lord, for air, whatever I'd listed. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for forgiveness. I made the list. As I said these things back in the form of the equation fitting Nehemiah 8.10, the Lord was giving me strength. <clears throat> I didn't know to begin with that every time you thank the Lord, Every time I thank him, a chemical change take his, takes place in the human anatomy. It is so gradual that we don't, we're not shocked by that change. But every time we thank the Lord, something happens to our physical being as well as our mental being and our spiritual being. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And while my doctor told me I would be laid up for six months, three days later, beloved friends, I was up and was on my way home. This thing was such a tremendous blessing to me. It was such an amazing revelation to me that I decided I would share it with the world. I didn't do a very good job. For years, I did a very poor job. Then, little by little, as people would come, people with nerve disorders, people with all kinds of situations, ailing situations, would come and they said, will you pray for me? I said, yes, but remember this you must immediately enter upon a joy program by which you will write the things for which you're grateful. That's a drill because we have 6,000 years of degeneration. So we must drill our minds as our beautiful author of the book Ministry of Healing has said in page 253. We must educate our lips and educate our hearts to speak his praise. It, it, it doesn't come easy. 6,000 years. We've been in this degenerative humanity. <laughs> now, we must drill ourselves and drill ourselves and drill ourselves in praising the Lord until it becomes more and more natural. It becomes a habit, you see. I found myself, my friends, sharing this with others. I found that one lady who, who had the most terrible revulsion to her husband, she practiced this praise program for two days and was completely cured. 
In her total experience, her husband had spent $10,000 on psychiatric help. And she reported to me that this praise program had done more for her, for her than all of the other help combined. Why shouldn't it? My maker and my king has given us a manual of health. Amen? It's a praising program. Another lady who was so badly off emotionally that her eyelids were way down. She could just peek out underneath. She was in a pitiful situation. In eight days of practicing this program, she was perfectly well. Another individual in 10 days, she'd had surgery, left her nerves in a state of shock. In fact, the accident had. The surgery had taken care of the physical part, but not the mental. In 10 days, the lady was completely cured. Her, her, her specialist declared that she was well. So I've been sharing some of these things with my friends who find it hard <coughs> to rise above our humanity, you see, who find ourselves going into orbit around the mistakes of life, about the hard time we've had, the circumstances, the trials, just like I had done. And after many decades passed, we came back and saw my friend. What will I call her name? Have I already given her name? I'm going to call her name. I'm going to call her name uh, Martha because that wasn't her name, Martha. My wife and I went up into Canada, and Martha was, a, uh, was an author. And uh, I've never been able to be a good writer. I've always felt my, my lack of ability. So I asked her if she would help me. So she put up at a motel room right next to ours for a weekend. We realized how very sad she was. She unburdened her heart, and she said, Glenn and Ethel, I want to tell you a little bit about my own history. And as she summarized it, she said, if it weren't a sin, I would end it all. I would commit suicide. I said, Martha, I have something for you. It has been tried out by myself. It is presented in God's Word in 826 texts of Scripture. We found people who are fabulously changed by the power of God, for joy plus the Lord is strength. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. And Christ says he saturates the thankful person with his own life, Psalm 22, 3, 1 John 5, 12. So I said, Martha, I'd like to suggest that you do what we've been teaching people across America and other lands. You'll make a little list of 10 things for which you're grateful. Then you'll carry that little card in your hand. And all day long, at every chance when you're not around other people, you'll go into these words, Thank you, Lord, for air. Thank you, Lord, for the next item, Jesus, maybe. Don't try to think up a sophisticated set of words. Take anything that comes to your mind. Thank you, Lord, for forgiveness. Oh, she said, I'm a happy person. She just told us how if it weren't a sin, she'd commit suicide, and then she tells us that she's a happy person. And you know, I didn't take her on. I didn't say, happy? A happy suicide? I didn't do that. There are times when I would have. I said, I know it, Martha. <laughs> the Lord helped me to, to, to know it. <laughs> I know it. But I said, you know, this is healing. All through the Word of God, it indicates that there's healing, healing of nerves, healing of body, healing of mind, healing of the emotions. Would you like to try it? Well, maybe. The next morning when we saw her, she said, well, I got, I got nine things. She said, I, I opened my door to my motel room and I saw a cat walk past. And I said, thank you, Lord, for the cat. And the cat has nine lives, so that's nine things. And I laughed with her, you know, because you can't get a person to do it by pouncing on them. Well, that's a good start. Martha, thank the Lord. This is beautiful. My wife and I prayed for Martha. We said, Lord, you sent Martha here not to help us with books as much as we need it. You sent her here that we would be unselfish, having paid for her motel room with the idea that you'd help us. You sent her here that we might help her and Lord help us to do it. 
So we would smile, we'd rejoice, we'd suggest the 10-point program, and then we left. She never did anything to help us. Listen, friends, two weeks later, as the Lord would have it, you know, the Lord orders our lives. Two weeks later, my wife and I were in a church about 150 miles away, maybe 200 miles away. As we walked into the Sabbath school, there was Martha sitting there, and I didn't know her. Now, I'm not very observant anyway, so it wasn't entirely the change of her. It's partly Glenn Kuhn's lack of observation. But I want to tell you, her countenance was changed. My wife recognized it as I did. And now, as the Lord would have it, the next step was this. Imagine, somebody invited my wife and me to eat the noon meal, the Sabbath noon meal at their home. They also invited Martha to eat. As we're sitting there, as they're preparing the meal, Martha said, Glenn and Ethel, the Lord gave you this program. She said, I am a completely different individual than I was two weeks ago. We said, Martha, we recognized it. She said, God has given you this mission to carry to the world. Later she wrote us, she said, I'm a school teacher, as you know. She said, I took this message back to my school. We had about 12 weeks left of the school year. And I said to my children, if you will bring in a list of 10 things each school day for which you're grateful, at the end of the year, I'm going to give you a very special personal gift. She said, every day, every child has brought in a list of 10 things. And she said, as the weeks have come and gone, Glenn and Ethel, the most fantastic thing has taken place. She said, this was a difficult school. The children were difficult, and also their parents. She said, the children are happy and pleasant and easy to get along with. And she said, you know what's happening? The disagreeable parents are now coming smilingly. And they said, you know, we're helping our children look up these 10 things. We look in the dictionary and everywhere. She said, the bitterness, the animosity, the meanness, the irritation has all disappeared. Ethel and Glenn carry it to the world. And that's what we're doing. Somebody said, what does that have to do with worship? My friends, do you remember in the Bible, in Job 38, it says, when the foundations of the earth were laid, the sons of God shouted for joy. That's the beginning of the experiment of this world. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, our king, our maker, the angels were rejoicing over Bethlehem. They said, I bring you tidings of great joy. When Jesus went into, into his, his Gethsemane experience, you know how he went? Leading his followers in a song. When the great experiment of sin is finished, the Bible tells us in Jude chapter 20, uh, verse 24, Christ will rejoice over us with exceeding joy. One of the most outstanding ingredients of worship is joy. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. For people to worship the Lord as Sadvenists is no worship at all. God wants us to be gladvenists. Worshiping him with all the joy of our souls. Thanking him for Calvary. Thanking him that we have an intercessory, intercessor in the, gates above, in the courts above. Thanking him that he's soon coming again to take us out of this world of sin and to a glory eternal. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness. Will you do it? Don't go home, beloved, and just say, I'll be more positive in my thinking. That isn't it at all. Write it out. Look at it. Say it. Hear yourself say it. And keep rejoicing every day. Make it a game in the family. My friends, the amount of diseases, of trials, of irritations, of family squabbles can evaporate in the light of Jesus Christ. Thank the Lord for it. Will you do it? How many here this evening, at this hour, by the grace of God, would like to give this prayerful thought and try to follow. Follow it, will you? May I see your hands? Praise the Lord, shall we pray. Dear Lord, you've said it is God that worketh in you.
both to will and to do of your good pleasure. We realize, dear Lord, that before we get home to, at this, from this service, the devil can give somebody a flat tire and a flat attitude. We realize, Lord, that while Satan is always following your children, that you have said, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Thank you for your deliverance as we keep looking to Jesus. Thank you for the biggest deliverance from our own self-centeredness. Thank you for keeping ourselves from pitting ourselves. And now, Lord, for that soul who may be in this session at this hour or viewing this message, who has never found Jesus as a personal Savior, a delightful Savior, may that one just now say, Lord, I invite you into my heart and my life. Will you do it? Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless you. And now for our questions and answers. But first, we're going to ask the Lord to give us the answers. In Jeremiah 33, 3, he promises it. Shall we ask? Lord, you've said, if we call upon you, you will do great and mighty things. You will answer us, you've said. We're looking to you for this answer. And even though the answer is in a way we don't expect, we pray that our hearts may be so humble that we'll accept your answers rather than ours. Thank you for hearing us. In Jesus' name, amen. First question. First questioner said, is there a Christian way to tell people to stop their children from talking and rustling papers during the church service, as it can get very loud at times and is quite disturbing? Yes, there is a Christian way. And the Christian way is always to have an understanding heart. This is very important. I remember, <laughs> let me share with you the wrong way first. <laughs> we had built, we had started a new church <laughs> where I was pastor, and we decided that we were going to try to have as little whispering as possible. So as we had decided that we would have just as little whispering as possible, the deacons were alerted, and in one of the services, somebody whispered just a little. And the deacon said, be quiet! And I thought, well, that's a chapter heading. He yelled, be quiet. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that paradoxical? The way to keep them from rustling uh, leaves of paper, sheets of paper, is not by... by by using the negative method. We must never forget that children are naturally wigglers. So there are several ways. One way is for the one in charge up front. Instead of pointing out individuals as wrong, saying, let us all be real careful to employ our children in such a way that they won't be overly noisy. Overcome evil with good, Romans 12, 21. You don't attack wrong. That isn't the way you cure wrong. You don't attack it. You overcome the evil by something that's good, by suggesting, what did you think of these little children that are naturally, they've got a wiggle. Give them something to, to write. During the service, maybe you'll suggest that they, uh, how Johnny, if Johnny's old enough to do it, how would you like to write out the text, some scripture? See whatever scripture you like the best in the service today. Johnny, I believe you're going to do real well. Talk faith in them. The seven secrets of communication. Jesus and joy. Always associate religion with joy. Humility and choice, which means don't tower over them as though we're right and they're all wrong. Faith, hope, and love. Say, you know, you're going to make it. You're doing real well. You know, it's astonishing how you can say to a child, you know, as we go into church, Daddy, you know Johnny? Johnny is going to be very quiet, and we're going to give him something to do. He's going to be awfully quiet because Johnny, Johnny wants to, to real, really be reverent. I believe he's going to be real reverent, and he can write quietly. Talk faith in them, and they long to live up to this confidence. Faith, the faith method of discipline is extremely important. Everybody longs to live up to our confidence. Try it out and see what'll happen. This questioner says, sometimes I don't feel like praying. 
even though I know it's my only defense against Satan. What can I do? Oh, bless your heart. You may be surprised when I tell you I have awakened hundreds of times feeling no more religious than a jackrabbit. And that's something for a coon, isn't it? No more religious than a jackrabbit. Aren't you glad that just shall live by what? Faith, not feeling. Feelings are like clouds. Where we live in Tennessee, up 3,700 to 4,500 feet elevation, there are clouds below in the valley that are changing pattern all the while. That's the way feelings are. Don't rely on our feelings. The just shall live by faith. Remember that God is still there. The promises are still good. His assurances are still sound and go right into orbit around your fellowship with him just as though you felt like it. Now, this is what will happen. Romans 10.10. It says, with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Another way of wording it is this. Go through the motions sincerely, and God will give you the emotions. Go through the motions, God will give you the emotions. The same thing is true in marriage. You tell your wife, your whimpering wife, that you love her, and first thing you know, you'll begin to love her. Tell your husband that he's a pretty good guy, and after a while, you'll believe it. Even you'll believe it. Go through the motions, you'll have the emotions. Thank you. Uh, you talked about uh, seven secrets of family communications several times, and this person uh, wonders if you just list those seven uh, secrets of family communication. We'd be delighted to. The seven secrets come in three groups. One group we call the laws of human ease. Laws of human ease. It means that if by the grace of God we conform to these two secrets or these two laws, people around us will feel at ease in our presence. And we've checked and double-checked on this for about 40 years, and we found that every family that separates has found that they have ignored these two secrets, these two laws, their choice and humility. Choice means don't try to boss our partner. Don't preach at the partner. Don't preach at the other person. If I preach at him, I'm breaking the law of choice because I'm trying to tell him what to do. The law of humility means don't belittle him. If I belittle him, he doesn't feel at ease. Now, the law of choice we call the law of the sovereign will. In other words, around every human being, there's an invisible circle. Within this circle, no other human being has a right to project himself in the line of either belittling or bossing. So choice is the law of the, of the sovereign will. And when I start entering a person's life and telling him what to do when he hasn't, hasn't asked, he rises in rebellion. That's why I have a favorite author who has said that arbitrary words and actions stir up the worst passions of the human heart. So we're not to tell any adult or instruct any adult unless he wants to know. That's choice. Joshua 24, 15. Humility means that I'm to respect everybody as better than myself. Philippians 2, 3. When we observe by the grace of God these two secrets, by not picking on people or trying to educate them and not belittling them, they feel at ease in our presence. No family separates ever. Partners never separate as long as they feel it perfectly at ease in each other's presence. Choice and humility. The next two laws are laws of strong allurement. We don't want people to merely feel at ease in our presence. We want them to feel allured to the Christ in us. The, those laws are Jesus and joy. When Jesus is supreme in our life and we have the joy of the Lord, this joy of Jesus will actually allure people to the Christ in us. Hosea 2.14. I will allure her. Nehemiah 8.10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Psalm 16.11. In his presence is fullness of joy. When we show the joy of Jesus, people are drawn to us. The next three laws are found in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter and the last verse, faith, hope, and love. These three laws 
we call the laws of divine pressure. The human heart does need pressure, not human pressure of belittling and instructing, but the pressure of spoken faith. Faith is the victory law, 1 John 5, 4. When I talk faith in a person's sincerity, he longs to live up to my confidence. We could give many illustrations. When I speak faith in this little boy that's carrying on in Sabbath school at church, and I express faith that he's going to be quiet, he longs to live up to it. Faith is the law of victory. Hope is the law of salvation. Romans 8, 24, we're saved by hope. Love is the success law that never fails. 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never faileth. And we love him because he first loved us. Now, love means it's an unselfish love that takes an interest in the other person's happiness. When I speak faith in a person sincerely, in his sincerity, and when I speak words of faith that he's going to make the grade, he longs by the power of God to live up to my, to my confidence. When I smile as I do it, indicating love, the combination of love and faith gives him hope. Those are briefly the seven. Did Jesus take the nature of Adam's sinless nature in being tempted in all points like as we are, as he said, or did he take on Adam's sinful nature? I would like to share about uh, three or four or five <clears throat> phases to the answer. Number one may almost shock <clears throat> some of us. Did you know that for centuries, the Christian church debated this? And in all of their debates, they never came together. That's number one. So that shows <clears throat> how uh, it shows a fallacy of trying to make others see things as we see them. Number two, can you imagine that when the thief hung on Calvary, and he asked Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And Jesus assured him of this. Can you imagine that the thief got all upset as to whether Christ had Adam's nature before he sinned or Adam's weaknesses after he sinned? Can you imagine that bothering the thief? Can you imagine that you and I will have to be able to unravel every phase of all of these things in order to be saved? No way. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Number three, it is not essential for you and me to try to cause, persuade another person to our belief as to whether Christ accepted Adam's nature before he sinned or after he sinned. There's a marvelous series of statements that I read from my favorite author in a book entitled The Mount of Blessings. I'd like to suggest that you read it. It's the last chapter in that book, The Mount of Blessings, and about the third page. And it goes on, and, and the chapter is entitled Not Judging But Doing, and it's a Bible study, a beautiful Bible study. It goes on to show that you and I should not judge each other, and then listen. It says that we should not even judge another man's interpretation of Scripture. Aren't you glad? If somebody sees this thing a little different from the way I see it, I'm in no way to judge him. That's charity, right? You know, we don't all have to see everything alike. Aren't you glad for that? No, no, no. Christianity is a what? A growth in grace. A growth in what? Grace. <laughs> grace. What is grace? Grace, as we would have it, is being graceful, charitable, and not trying to be legalistic in our approach towards somebody else. Aren't you glad? Well, what do you think, Kuhn? I think my concept is that when Jesus came to this world, he took on the weaknesses of the human race, but not the sinful nature. And I am not trying to prove that to anybody. I believe my Lord was tempted in all points like as I am. Don't you? 
and that without sin, and that gives me hope. Amen? Thank you. The next. As a parent in today's generation, where do I let go and still be Christ-like? This young man, I take it it's a son, works, spends his spare time drinking, smoking pot, using pep pills and Valium. He does nothing to help around home. Should I cook, even make his lunches, and do his laundry? I do want him to come back to the Lord, but how far should I go? Very, very, very important question. Very important. First of all, try in all of these cases to diagnose, if you please, why. What is the basic situation? What is the basic illness? His drinking, his smoking, all that he's doing are problems, but they're not the primary problem. What is the primary problem? He doesn't know the love of Jesus Christ. It's just like a boil. Somebody treats a boil. It's all right to treat the boil. The boil is a problem, but it's a secondary problem. The primary problem is something else, poison in the system. So what you see taking place with this boy is a secondary problem. It's not a primary problem. The primary problem is he does not know the love of Jesus Christ. So he sought for substitutes. It doesn't mean that he even wants to be cussed. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't want to be cussed. He just wants something that'll satisfy. So therefore, what shall we do? What is the remedy for the soul that does not know the love of Jesus? It is for the love of Jesus to flow through me. And my friends, this is the solution. Now, this isn't a total solution. It's not a permissive love. There are two phases to the love of God. One phase is that which appears to be passive, like representing ki the kindness of Jesus, not being irritable, you see. Who, when he was reviled, he reviled not again, as the Apostle Peter says. That's a passive phase, which is important. Uh, as Isaiah 30, 15 says, in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. That's a passive phase. Then there's the active phase at a certain point. And this active phase must be preceded by the passive phase. In other words, before I tell you about the active phase, unless this boy sees in us an unirritated spirit, such as Jesus had when the mob was trying him, unless he sees in us a love, an unselfish love for him. He doesn't see the love of Christ. Now, so we must first of all say, Lord, do what you've said in Isaiah 49, 25. He said, I will contend with him, that's the devil, that contends with you, and I'll save your children. I used to think he was saying, I'll, I will contend, that the Lord is saying, I'll contend with the devil that is contending with your child. No. I will contend with the devil that's contending with you. In other words, first of all, the Lord says, I will, I will take care of the devil part in your life. This part that gets irritated. and says to him, listen, you... <coughs> you see? The Lord said, I want to take care of that. Then after I've taken care of that, and he has a, a beautiful display of the real passive love of Jesus, the unirritated love of Jesus, the type of love that isn't mad. Then, if he doesn't change, then the love of God, and this is just as much the love of God, is revealed in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Whom the Lord loves, he does what? He chastises. The home that has no rules is just as badly off as the home that is permissive. So the two must be blended, this kind, loving attitude of Jesus Christ, this forgiving attitude, this attitude that says, I love you no matter what you do, combined with this discipline. Unless this boy learns rules in the home, he will be led to reject all rules. So I owe it to God, and I'm responsible under God, to have certain rules in the home 
They must be very few, but they must be always enforced. Now, that doesn't mean that I put the boy out. Here's where it's very important that we seek wisdom. James 1, 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Lord, you say something like this. First of all, help me to represent the love of Jesus. Then help me, Lord, to set out before him a few simple rules, and then teach me how to enforce them. There are certain things I cannot do to enforce rules. For instance, I will not put my boy out. I will never say to him, you either obey or get out. Never, never, never. The Bible says the devil and the angels left their own habitation. If he chooses to leave, all right. But you can say, I'll love you forever. But as long as you are in the home, there are these rules that must be obeyed. Now, how are you going to enforce it? At that age, you can't enforce it by putting him over your knee and whipping him, you see. That's why you'll be asking God, Lord, give me wisdom. What can I withdraw from him? Uh, what type of permission? What type of gifts? Uh, am I letting him drive my car? Shall I say, Lord, you can't drive the car? if you don't live up to some of these very simple rules in the home, if you smoke outside, that's a different thing. But in the home, you must be back in at a certain time at night. If you watch television, you must have it in your own room where it will not interfere with the rest. A few very simple laws, rules, and definitely carried out. Now, God will give you wisdom to know what to withhold from him in the form of discipline and explain to him, I'm doing it only because I love you and I'm obligated to God to do it. And do it, and as you do it, ask God to keep you from being a Madventist. You either do this or... No, no. Help me to have the Spirit of Jesus. Amen. Study it over, pray about it. You may put another question in another session. Here is a very difficult problem, Pastor Kuhn. How do you face a situation as a widower who has a single daughter living with him who has become pregnant? Is that the whole question? That's the full question. How do you face the situation? You praise the Lord that she's at home. Praise the Lord that she's at home. And put your big arm of love around her and say, I love you with all my heart. You may want to quote to her the text of Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Now, I haven't done what you've done, perhaps, honey, <coughs> but I've had my own sins. I've made my own mistakes. We're all backsliders, honey. I'm so glad you felt free to come back to Daddy. And I want you to know that Jesus is going to be with you. I'll support you in every way possible and we'll storm the throne of grace, and we're going through those gates to the city of God together, honey. We're going through together. God is completely forgiven. And my friends, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will do wonders. Don't even show that you're humiliated. Jesus, when he talked to the woman of Samaria, who'd had five husbands and was now living out of wedlock. Oh, it's beautiful the way our favorite author describes it in that beautiful book, The Desire of Ages. She, his heart was pained very, very quick, but he never showed any pain. It would have created a gulf. She would have felt that he was belittling her. Jesus doesn't belittle the sinner. He saves the sinner. Amen. He forgives the sinner. Praise the Lord for that question. God bless you. The Bible talks about seven last plagues. Will they fall before the Christians are taken up to heaven? Yes, according to the Word of God. The Bible says in Revelation 22:11. and Brother Steve, while I'm answering this, would you mind hunting, hunting up that question, if you can, about the girl that had a mental problem? I think we ought to cover that a little because I promised to in this session. Uh, oh, yes. In Revelation chapter 22, 11 and 12, it says that before Jesus comes again, he that is unjust will be unjust still. He that is filthy will be filthy still, which means that every human being has closed his probation sometime before Jesus comes. 
the seven last plagues fall also before Jesus comes, and it says in the 16th chapter of Revelation, they repented not to give him glory. Now, after Jesus comes, there is no repentance because he said, I come quickly, Revelation 22, 12, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. The reward is given at his coming and not after his coming. There's no salvation after he comes. If this, uh, if I haven't spent enough time, put it back in again. I do want to get to this next one too for just a moment or two. Yes, do we I have haven't been able to find yet? the specific question, but as, as I recall, it was a girl that was plagued with mental disorders and the right. question was, what specifically can be done to help her in the way of healing or other ways? And about how many moments would you say we have left, uh, brother? Th good three minutes. About three minutes. Let me say briefly this, that not every mental illness can be cured the same way. Only the Lord knows all of the background. If any human being could tell us one prescription for all mental illness, you know what would happen? all the mental institutions <laughs> would open wide and the people could be freed. There's a background that differs in every person's life. I'll share briefly with you. In the last two sessions ago, I believe it was, we related the experience of Mary Magdalene, who had a very deep uh, emotional disorder. As she went in orbit around Jesus for that eight-day program, she was healed. Another young woman that we visited who was in a similar condition, we got her to just say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And in a short period of time, she was healed. We have found that one of the most tremendous therapies for a person with emotional ills is this joy program. If you can very easily, without giving the person the impression that you're trying to teach them, you see, if you can share with them the joy program on a humble level, Try it out. Then, of course, we'll all unite in praying for this individual. And don't forget, Friday evening at 6.30, we have a, a healing laboratory session together. We'll remember her at that time and be free to put in another question, if you wish, between now and then. But we will pray now for her and for all who have put in these questions and those concerning whom the questions came in. Dear Lord, you've said you sent your word and healed. We claim your healing love upon these dear ones. We claim your healing wisdom upon us that we may make the right responses to every issue of life. You've promised us this wisdom. You've promised us this strength. So we ask believingly, we claim triumphantly in the blessed, holy, beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.